Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Last time in Genesis 3, we did learn a little bit about God's plan of salvation. Through the words that God spoke in the curse to the serpent, we discovered that there would be a victory over sin, a victory to come in the future, and that that victory would come through the line of the woman. The son born to the woman would someday come, and he would deliver the victory. But we also learned that before that son would come, there would be a wait there would be a long wait. I think the story of Abraham and Sarah is an interesting one because one of the things it does early on in Scripture is illustrate what waiting looks like. The whole pattern of the way that God works is pictured for us in the lives of Abraham and Sarah, right? Because they receive a promise, but then they have a long wait before that promise is fulfilled, I think it's an especially good example of that process of promise and waiting and fulfillment because it's such a bad example. It's a good example because it's a bad example because they don't wait well. Forced to wait, Abraham and Sarah become concerned that the promise God made is not being fulfilled and they take matters into their own hands. They look to other ways of bringing about the promise. They don't just wait on the Lord and in that we can sympathize with them because we too are people who have difficulty waiting. We don't wait well. If we're forced to wait too long for the things that we desire, we start looking for ways to bring about those promises, looking for ways to get the blessing without having to wait on God to deliver them. But finally, God does fulfill that promise. He's promised Abraham a blessing that will come through his son Isaac, and now his son is born, a miraculous son, a son who you wouldn't have thought, given the age of the parents, was even possible. Isaac comes into the world. And so the picture is complete, the promise, the long wait, and finally the fulfillment. And the music swells and the curtains draw. No, it's not the end. Because after being given this son of promise, we get to Genesis 22. And Abraham is commanded by God to take this son, who he loves, out into the wilderness and to sacrifice him. And everything that you see in the narrative suggests that Abraham intends to do precisely what God has instructed. He doesn't hold back. He starts early in the morning. At a certain point, when it's time to kind of do the deed, he leaves behind everyone who could conceivably stand in the way of accomplishing this, and he takes Isaac alone, gets to the point of binding him and putting him on the altar. Now, he doesn't go through with it. The angel intervenes. Happy ending, so to speak. Isaac probably, if he he were alive today, would have some therapy bills as a result of this, but uh, happy ending. Everything works out fine, and we recognize that something's happening here. Abraham, who's willing to go when God tells him to go, who's willing to do what God tells him to do, he's living a life in which God is revealing himself over time. Abraham is learning something from this experience, and we are learning along with him. A picture is being painted. 
It's a terrible command that God gives. It's a terrible command. But maybe it pictures something that is necessary, a solution to the problem of sin. Maybe something terrible will be necessary to fulfill the promise of hope from Genesis 3.15. Now, this wasn't that act. Isaac wasn't the son who was promised in Genesis 3.15, but he pictures that son. And in this act, we learn something about the work that that son must fulfill. What happened at Genesis 22 was not the victory. But what happened in Genesis 22 is a picture of the victory that was to come in Jesus Christ. And there's a lesson in it. In fact, there's several lessons for us. If there's sin, then there must be a sacrifice. If there's sin, then there must be a sacrifice. The fall of man, of humanity, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, introduces this problem of condemnation, this problem of death. And the plan of salvation is an answer to that, a solution to that problem as it unfolds. And what we discover here is how extreme a solution is necessary. If sin is the problem and the death and the condemnation that comes, then the only solution will be in sacrifice. When you think about the nature of sin, we can talk about sin in in a really... um, sort of highbrow cosmic way. Think about the battle of good and evil, the sort of epic struggle. And that's true. But the battle against sin is not just cosmic, it's also personal. Right? There may be uh, good and evil waging in the world around us, but the good and evil, the battle between good and evil that we're most familiar with is the one that takes place within our own hearts. Because of sin, that battle has erupted within us. So then in Genesis 4, when God speaks to Cain about the life he now must live, about what it means to live life in the fallen world as a sinner, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Because of sin and inner turmoil or struggle, is it an end to all of us? It's true for Cain, but, but you can relate to that. You haven't murdered anyone, as far as I know. You're not as bad as Cain, as far as I know. But we can all relate to the struggle that God speaks of with Cain. It's hard to be good. It's hard to be obedient. Sometimes you, you get on a roll And it feels like finally you've turned over a new leaf and then you stumble and then you fall. And the funny thing is, even the smallest thing makes it so much easier to sin again. Isn't that funny? You you can be obedient and obedient and obedient. And somehow obedience doesn't get easier the way that that disobedience does. There's a certain point when we we stumble and, and, and we fall into sin and it just feels like there's no point of trying to change. There's no point in fighting it. That's the struggle. Sure, there's a cosmic struggle. You look at the world around you, and it seems like the darkness is overcoming the light, but also inside of us. We can see that as well. And if that's true, if the the effects of sin are both cosmic and personal, then the plan of salvation has to be both of those things as well. 
It's not just a cosmic plan. It's also a personal one. It's not just victory, triumph for good over evil in in the larger world. It's also victory, the triumph of good over evil inside of us as well. And that's where the problem comes in. Looking at a passage like Genesis 22, studying a figure like Abraham, Abraham sets an example that seems impossible to follow. Seems impossible. How could you have faith like Abraham? How could you possibly rise to this level? It seems inconceivable. If a voice from heaven tells you to take your child out and sacrifice him, I don't know how many of us would be willing to do that. And honestly, if you come to your pastor and say, a voice from heaven told me to sacrifice my kid, I'm going to try to get you help. I'm going to try to stop you from doing this. Right? It's inconceivable, this, this narrative that we're given here. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the, the 19th century Lutheran Danish theologian slash philosopher, wrote a whole book about this. It's called Fear and Trembling. In this book, it's basically a meditation on the character of Abraham. Like, what kind of a hero of the faith must this man Abraham have been to be able to act in this way? And Kierkegaard goes on and on, and and, and I'll be guilty here of taking a very complex work and reducing it down to to just a thumbnail sketch, so so there's, there's much more to it than this. But essentially, Kierkegaard ends up seeing Abraham as a sort of... Um, saintly hero of faith, the likes of which ordinary mortals like us could never aspire to be. For a man like that, who is willing to act on faith, who who believes, not just uh, in the absence of conclusive evidence, but who believes as a result of this sort of leap of faith, this leap into the unknown, there is what Kierkegaard calls a, a teleological suspension of the ethical. In other words... What, what Abraham is willing to do on the ethical level, we call it murder. But what Abraham is willing to do on the spiritual level is worship, sacrifice. Just don't try this at home. That's the big lesson, I think, reading a book like Fear and Trembling is <laughs> you can't do it. You can't try this at home. There's another uh, book that, that's very different in tone, but, but Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, it's one of those giant Russian novels that, that very few people have read, but a lot of people have heard of, and maybe you've seen a, a film adaptation of it. There's a famous chapter in that book, the Grand Inquisitor chapter. It's kind of fascinating. One of the characters in the book who's an atheist, as Dostoevsky was. Dostoevsky was a believer but had been a very sort of rigorous atheist. He said uh, later in life, my hosanna comes from the crucible of doubt. So he hadn't just been a Christian from his birth. He'd actually denied it and fought against it and only come to faith as a result of that struggle when he was in Siberia. And he writes this chapter where, where a character who's kind of a, a, an aspect of his personality, his atheism, has written a poem in which the Grand Inquisitor, Torquemada, who is this uh, Spanish, I guess he was a cardinal in Spain in the 1500s, was burning people at the stake for their heresies. And he imagines a scene in which Jesus appears in Seville and is arrested by the Inquisition, and the Grand Inquisitor comes to interrogate him. Throughout the whole uh, dialogue... Jesus never speaks, which makes it a monologue. 
But the Grand Inquisitor basically criticizes Jesus, tells him what a mistake he made in, in the choices that he made because he had expected people to follow him freely. He'd expected people to live good lives. He'd given them the power to uh, be righteous, to be obedient. But the reality is most people are just too weak. Sure, maybe there are a few saints there are few heroes of the faith who can attain to that level. But for the average person, it's just not possible. For the average person, you've got to give them permission to sin. You've got to make it okay for them to be who they are, to just be weak. You've got to guide them. You've got to, got to be an authority for them that gives them permission to be what they are and doesn't try to change. And that's more loving, the Grand Inquisitor tells Jesus. That's more loving then calling them to holiness and righteousness. You just have to love them as they are, he says. In both cases, the idea is, is really stark. The idea is that the Christian life is one for heroes. That maybe occasionally there's a person who is so good, a person so holy that they are able to take up their cross and follow Jesus. But for most people, that's just not going to work. It's not possible to be that good. It's not possible to be a hero of the faith the way that Abraham is. To which I say, absolutely right. Amen. It's not. But the problem is when we focus on figures like Abraham, and we read a story like this, and we see it primarily as a puzzle about the mindset or the psychology of Abraham and how can I be more like Abraham? We're missing something in the story, because Abraham in this story isn't focused on himself. So if we focus on Abraham, we're not focused on what Abraham is focused on. If we want to understand the story of Genesis 22, we have to turn our eyes where Abraham's eyes are turned, and that's to the God who gives the commands. We have to look at God and what God is doing here, not to marvel and wonder at Abraham's obedience, but to marvel and wonder and what God is doing. Abraham was a hero of the faith. Genesis, sorry, Hebrews 11 lists him in the catalog of, of heroes of the faith. But it's a little misleading to talk about him that way because the way that that suggests faith works is a little bit like a superpower. As if the, the book of Hebrews is just listing all these people who had this extraordinary, incredible superpower was kind of handed down. These were people who possessed this quality, this faculty of faith. But faith isn't a superpower. Faith is not a virtue. Right? Faith, the, the faith that Abraham had, the faith that justified him, was a faith in something, a faith that had an object. The faith itself was not where the strength was. The object of the faith is where the strength was and the power was. Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested in Genesis 22, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's given the promise. It must be fulfilled through Isaac. He is in the very act of offering up Isaac, through whom the promise must be made, apparently snuffing out the promise. You would think that's the case. But in Hebrews 11.19, we're told this, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So when we puzzle over the mind of Abraham, what must Abraham have been thinking? The author of Hebrews tells you that at the moment he takes the knife, 
the moment that he's about to extinguish any hope of the fulfillment of the promise that's been made to him. His faith in the God who made that promise is so strong that he believes even if I kill him, God will bring him back to life. He believes so strongly in the resurrection, the life of the son that he's willing to kill, that he's willing to undertake that act. His faith is in God. It's not in himself. It's not that he's got this virtue that allows him to act. He's looking to a God who's made a promise that he believes God will fulfill. There are people who say, well, but surely Abraham knew that God wasn't really going to make him do it. I mean, come on. God obviously isn't going to send you into the wilderness and say, I want you to murder somebody. So Abraham probably went along with it, you know, and maybe pulled out the knife. And he's like, you know, slow motion because he knows, he knows God's not going to make him go through with this. People say that, and it feels like a a good reading of the story because it kind of gets you off the hook. Abraham is a a less uncomfortable father figure than than he would be otherwise. But uh, that really doesn't work. It doesn't work because of something we talked about last time, progressive revelation. It doesn't work because when we say things like that, we're basing it on a whole record of revelation that God has given to human beings that Abraham did not have. God was revealing to Abraham step by step how it was going to be and what his expectations were. Abraham had no reason to believe that God was merely testing him. Maybe this was something new. Maybe this was something God did expect. Maybe this was the fulfillment of that ancient promise. Maybe it would be necessary for a sacrifice to be made in order to fulfill that promise. And that's the reason the son was born. These would have been plausible things for Abraham to believe. These are things, in fact, that are on some level true. As the author of Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, he did receive his son back from death. He expected his son to die, but his son was spared. So he did receive him back in a figurative sense. And in that process, God is revealing to Abraham and to us something which must take place something that is going to happen. If there's sin, there must be a sacrifice. If there's sin, there must be a sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this understanding that sacrifices must be made to roll back the effect of sin. The consequence of sin is death, and death is only answered by the shedding of blood. A sacrifice is necessary. If you think about the story we've read about Isaac and then what you know about the life and death of Jesus, there are some astonishing similarities between the two. Obviously, both of them are unlikely, miraculous births, one more so than than the other, but uh, you get the idea. Uh, Jesus and Isaac were both unlikely sons. They were both promised sons. Both of them were offered up as a sacrifice. Even in the fine details, there are some interesting things. In verse 6 of Genesis 22, we're told that Abraham takes the wood of the sacrifice and lays it on Isaac. He lays it on him for him to carry the wood, which will be used to, to burn him. And then in the story of Christ's crucifixion in John 19:17, we discover that the cross of sacrifice is placed upon Jesus to carry the instrument of his death 
the weight of it is rested upon him to carry to the place of sacrifice. Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming from afar, declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As if God now is providing the Lamb that was promised. When Peter talks about the death of Christ, the precious blood of Christ that has been shed for us, that has ransomed us, he compares it to the blood of a Lamb without spot or blemish. Depending on the scholarship on the way that you interpret some of the words in the story, there's, there's another interesting little parallel. This takes place in, in the land of Moriah, in a mountain that God points out in the land of Moriah. In Second Chronicles chapter 3, when Solomon builds the temple where the sacrifices are going to be made to atone for sin year after year, he builds it on Mount Moriah. Scholars disagree over whether there are references to the same place exactly. There's some ambiguity, but you can see it's suggestive because when they rebuild that temple later on and Jesus is crucified, it's the veil of the temple that is torn in two, revealing the Holy of Holies when Jesus is sacrificed. So a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels, which are important because in Genesis 22, right at the beginning of the story, God is foreshadowing. God is giving us glimpses of what will happen in the life of Christ, the necessity of that sacrifice. The similarities are important, but the differences are important too. The fact that, that in Genesis 22, the sacrifice is not made, that Isaac is not offered, rather a ram is offered in his place, that's significant too. That says something as well. Because the sacrifice must be made for sin, but the sacrifice won't suffice without a substitute. A sacrifice must be made, but it can't be this one. God is showing the necessity of the sacrifice, but he's also showing that this is not an efficacious one. Isaac is not the son who can be offered. It's true he fits some of the criteria in that he is human, and the sacrifice must be human, must be born of a woman, but he's not the human who is promised. We often speak of sanctification as the imitation of Christ. When you think about what God is doing with Abraham in this story, I think there is an invitation that God is making to Abraham. He's asking him, in a sense, to be like me, imitate me, draw near to me in experience. Even in our suffering, there can be a comfort in thinking that Christ has suffered as well that my suffering draws me closer to the experience of Christ. And here, as God tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, it's as if he's inviting the patriarch to be like him in his suffering. To be like him in his suffering. To, to taste and see what it is. To be willing to do what God is willing to do. To answer the problem of sin. Abraham believes that God will raise Isaac from the dead. And this, too, is a kind of invitation of an expectation. That confidence in life after death mirrors God's own intention, not only to see his son Christ sacrificed, but also to raise him from the dead. God will one day offer up as a sacrifice for sin the son through whom the promise of salvation must be fulfilled. 
will raise up that son from the grave. But Abraham, no matter how close he can get to approximating the experience of God, Abraham cannot solve the problem of sin by offering up his son. This only God can do. That's where the similarity ends. The sacrifice must be fully human, born of a woman, but he cannot be merely Abraham's son, Isaac. He must be God's son, Jesus. Fully human, but fully God. I know that when we talk about sacrifice, it's ugly, it's repugnant. It's a wonderful line in a novel of C.S. Lewis's where he talks about a temple where sacrifices are made. He refers to the smell, which we don't usually think of. He calls it the stench of the holy. But if you can imagine a temple where these sacrifices are constantly going on, this butchering is taking place. There must have been some olfactory signs to it that, that most of us modern people, very well insulated from the realities of what it takes to be fed, would find repugnant, would think of as ugly. And in that light, the ugliest of all is Christ's sacrifice. Not the offering of a lamb, but the offering of a man, a human being, as a sacrifice seems abhorrent. It seems primitive. It seems so unnecessary. We have a tendency as modern people to look at things with disdain and to tell ourselves that whatever seems ugly to us must be unnecessary, must be pointless. The reason for that is we don't really see the nature of the problem. We don't really feel as if sin is such a bad thing that it would require such an awful solution. We find the solution, the way it's described in Scripture, distasteful because we don't find the problem distasteful at all because mostly we think of it as indifferent we think of it as just the way we are we think of it as human nature yet the bible says the sacrifice is necessary sin brings death and sin can only be atoned for through the shedding of blood as early as genesis not at the end Not when Jesus comes, but at the beginning, in Genesis, in the life of Abraham, to whom that covenant promise is made, we see that human salvation from sin will require not only a son born of woman, but also the sacrifice of that son, the sacrifice of the son who was promised. We look at Jesus' sacrifice sometimes and we tell ourselves, Jesus suffered so that I don't have to. Jesus sacrificed so that I don't have to. I don't need to sacrifice anything because that's what Jesus has done for me. But remember God, in speaking to Cain, described things differently. God said there is a struggle. God says there is something going on inside of you, that there will be self-denial, there will be sacrifice involved in following Christ. Indeed, to imitate a, a Christ, a God who has sacrificed himself, shouldn't we expect that we would be called upon to sacrifice as well? Throughout the Bible, 
there is this understanding that we are not to be ruled by our passions, by our desires, but rather are to rule over them. And it's not just the Bible that sees it this way. The whole classical world, ancient wisdom, the philosophers all understood that the person that you didn't want to be was the person who was ruled by his passions, the person who was merely the sum of his indulged desires, because that person was undisciplined. That person wasn't struggling against his inner demons. He was in bondage to them. That was something they understood. And they understood it because they understood that desire is corrupted by sin. That we can't merely follow our hearts. We can't merely be what we want to be. Because what we want to be has been changed, has been refracted, has been bent by our sinfulness. And as a result, if you believe human beings are sinful, then you know we can't just follow our natural inclination. We can't just follow our natural desires and expect everything to be okay. Because those desires cannot be uncritically trusted. Those desires are corrupted by sin. Sin lies at the door. It wants to rule over you, but you must rule it, God says. But if there is no sin, if there is no sense of sin, no concept of the fallenness of human beings, then there's no need to fight. There's nothing wrong with giving into, being ruled by our desires. There's no wrong with confusing who we are with what we want to do. There's nothing to give up. There's nothing to resist. All we need to do is be who we want to be. But we lose something else when we lose that struggle. We lose our sense of self as something more than just the sum of our desires. The idea that that we are something more than just our passions. We become not free, but in bondage. We have an impoverished view of what it means to be human, and we essentially say to the Grand Inquisitor from Dostoevsky, you're right, we're weak, we're weak. This is the best that we can do. We can't fight, we must give in. The bad news is, though, that surrendering to sinful desire doesn't end the struggle. There's a pithy uh, piece of advice by Oscar Wilde. It's one of those things that sounds so good, you figure it must be true. Oscar Wilde says the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, he says, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. You don't want to be sick with longing. If you're going to be tempted, the only way to get rid of that is to yield to it. The problem is that yielding doesn't end the desire. Yielding to temptation doesn't end the temptation. It draws you deeper into its web, deeper into its bondage. There's a sickness worse than the sickness of being denied your sinful desires. It's the sickness that comes when they are granted, the bondage that follows. Well, the good news is that while you do have to sacrifice, you do have to turn your back on things, you do have to say, here am I, when God calls and be willing to obey. And you do have to wait. All those things are true. But the good news is you don't have to be a hero of the faith. 
You don't have to do the impossible. The heroes of the faith of Hebrews 11 are not held up to you so that you can be a great man like that, a great woman like that. So you can rise up and be a hero among mere Christians, a super Christian, not like the people who just clock in on Sunday mornings and clock out and live their lives. You can be better than that. You can be a saint. Good news is you don't need to be. You don't have to be those things. In fact, you cannot be those things. What you need to do is not aspire to be a hero of the faith, but turn your eyes and point them in the direction of the direction of those who are called heroes of the faith. What you will see there is not a pantheon of heroes to inspire, uh, to emulate, to follow after. You will find one hero of the faith, Jesus Christ. One. Follow him. Look to him. That's what you're called to do. Abraham was justified by faith. And as Genesis 22 shows, it was a faith that produced works. It produced obedience. But don't imagine that Abraham was justified for possessing an abstract spiritual quality of faith. Like seatbelts don't save your life because you have a deep spiritual faith in seatbelts. Seatbelts save your life because that's what seatbelts do. It's an objective thing. It's not about how inwardly convinced you are of the technology. It just works. It's what it does. In the same way, salvation does not hang upon how convinced we are, how certain we are, how deeply we spiritually trust in the certainty of what God has done. Salvation rests in the objective reality that God will save. Jesus will do this. It's what he does. Jesus saves. That's where our confidence is. That's where our eyes are set. Not to ourselves, because Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We wait for him. We sacrifice for him because we know that he will keep his promise because keeping promises is what he does. Because what is being revealed to us as we look through Scripture and we contemplate what it means to wait for him, what he's shown us in Genesis 3, what he shows us in Genesis 22, and what he shows us in every line, in every verse, in every word of Scripture is I do what I promise to do. Now, if I promise to save you, I'll do it. Have faith in that. Have confidence in that. Don't trust in yourself. Don't believe in yourself. Trust in him. Have confidence in him. Salvation is what he does. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.